a little bit deeper into first into first peter uh, last week i pointed out if you were here and recall that uh, peter was uh, clearly the leader among the apostles he often spoke up for them and for us verbalizing their thoughts and questions and then if you thought if you remember the sermon last week john david and i did not coordinate our comments about peter at all but I think it's interesting that uh, how the Lord orchestrated my lesson with John David's sermon, and Peter was a key character in both. Um, John David spoke on Matthew uh, 19:27, and I said last week that the apostles, that the gospels actually say more about Peter than any other person than Jesus. And it was interesting that John David jumped to Matthew, and there we are about Peter. And uh, it's, it's just, I think, more evidence that uh, how there's a, a flow in continuity in, in Scripture uh, that can be described as nothing less than, than really supernatural. I mean, this, this, this just didn't happen over a course of 1,500 years, about 40 different authors in, uh, in three different continents. And we end up with this continuity from beginning to end. Um, Last week's sermon, John David did bring out in Matthew 19, 27, where Peter spoke up and basically said, we've given up everything, and then sort of, what's in it for me? And I thought about that often on this week, and likely a question they all had but did not ask, and often a question we may have but we don't ask. Uh, well, we don't have to ask it because Jesus actually answered Peter and then he answered us more specifically. He said, for you, 12, uh, you, you're going to rule with me over as, as, we, as ancient Israel was ruled with, with 12 judges. And for those that will come later, they're going to, they're going to acquire a inheritance that's a hundredfold beyond even what, what the apostles get. So that's us. So it's, it's, a, it's a powerful answer, a powerful statement. Um, And he talks about Peter, when Jesus went on to said the first will be last and the last will, will be first. I think that's, that's not only <clears throat> that he will elevate us, um, his chosen, uh, but uh, at the same time, his, he was pointing out that uh, people at the bottom get moved to the top and those at the top sort of get moved to the bottom and there's, there's, there's equality in heaven that you will not find here. No matter how hard we try, there's an equality of heaven. Um, just as uh, the ground is all level at the cross, uh, there's no one special uh, at the cross. We're all sinners condemned, and short of uh, acceptance of Jesus Christ, we, we get the condemnation we deserve. Anyway, moving from last week to this week, the morning first Peter. Uh, I hope you at least read the entire book this week. We're going to take a a look at some words and phrases and verses which are probably familiar to all of us, but yet might, may not fully understand the depth and meaning. Um, my wife said, try not to go so fast. And I told you last week I have a lot to say, and I'm not getting any younger, so I don't want to run out of time uh, here, right? right uh, so I just, just we're, we're going to move, we're going to keep moving. We're going to keep moving. So. Um, if you have a photographic memory, click it on would be a good, you know, a good approach to this. Um, but we're going to do some word studies this morning. We did a little bit last week. We're going to do some more word studies this morning. Why study a word? I like what grace to you. Their, their, uh, their uh, statement is um, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time. I like, I like that, but I, I like to unleash God's truth one word at a time. 
Uh, why? Because God said, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So uh, words are important. The um, words and their meaning, it's, it's, it can be, they can, an individual word can be critical to our, our full and uh, a full-orbed understanding of what God is telling us in his word, especially as you begin these different translations. I talked about last week briefly about different versions, King James, ESV, goes on and on and on. There are some better than others, obviously, uh, but words are important. But so are phrases, so are principles that are applied, that sort of thing. If you go back to First Peter and you look at one one, I brought up sojourner. You may see sojourner in your. It could be pilgrims. It could be stranger. Um, interesting that just the one book over, James. If you look in James one one, he 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 says this. He uses a a word there like that. Peter does scattered. I just thought that interesting. So sojourner in verse one, um, uh, we're there. We are. We are the scattered pilgrims. We are the scattered strangers. We are. He's writing to us and them. We are the scattered sojourners. They're, they're spread all over. Um, so there's a sojourner word in verse one, but if you read in verse two, you will read the word elect. Uh, so I, I often ask myself in, 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 as I read Scripture and study Scripture about the words, and do words, do they, do they relate in any way? Can I, do, or the way you can combine the words, what is God telling me by using, calling them sojourners and then turn around calling them elect? Then, then if, he calls, if we're called by those two terms, there's, there's got to be something to those two words, even though they're separated in, in our verses. Um, are we sojourners, or are we elect, or are we both? So I like I ask those questions. My questions are interesting sometimes to only me, but I ask them in my mind anyway. Um, I like to ask those questions because doing doing so helps me to expand my thinking, and 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 questions prompt me to dig deeper into what the scripture says. So yes, he is writing to sojourners, and yes, he is writing to the elect. Verses one and two. What I find interesting is that the Greek word translated elect in verse 2 actually appears in verse 1 as a modifier of that word strangers or pilgrim or sojourner. Um, so in verse 1, elect has a twofold meaning here. Elect has to salvation, yes, that's specific in verse 2. But elect also to be a stranger or a sojourner in verse 1. So Peter is writing to scattered strangers in a land not of their cho choosing, elected be, to be strange children of God in a world that hates them. Um, so the elect means not only elect for salvation, but he elected Peter's audience as well as he, uh, he elect, God elected them to be placed in a foreign land. So you, you follow that, you follow this, got a dual meeting. I elect you, as, you are my redeemed. I elected you, I chose you for redemption. Now I choose to place you in this strange, hostile environment. So it's got this twofold meaning. So when you begin to think about that, you think, well, what, I'm here for a purpose. There's a bigger purpose than just being saved. If, you were if he just redeemed you and that's all his plan was for you, he would take us immediately to heaven, but he leaves us here for a purpose. And we'll get into that a little bit more. So, I'm sorry. Peter. 
Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> sure, we have a purpose, and we should be driven by that purpose and our purposes, but not quite the way as he presents it in that, that book. Peter is writing to scattered strangers in a land not of their choosing, elected to be strange children of God in a world that hates them. People have been chosen by God for salvation and chosen by God to be strangers placed by God in their particular foreign country. The foreign country could be Canton, it could be Cherokee County, it could be Fulton County, it could be a particular state, it could be a, a foreign country. Almost immediately after Christ ascended to Acts, uh, ascended in, in the book of Acts, we read about the martyrdom of Stephen. Uh, that prompted many to leave Jerusalem and move back to their home, and in many cases farther, even beyond their home. You've probably heard it called the, dis the, the dispersion or the diaspora. That is, that is what is meant by that. They just immediately, they, they were in Jerusalem, said, boy, we love it here. We just, can't, we just can't leave. But when Christ ascended, and interesting that when Stephen was martyred, everybody said, well, maybe this is not, you know, maybe, I prob maybe I shouldn't hang around here too long. You know, I'm only going to walk down that dark alley alone so many times, which is kind of like, I'm going to stay in Jerusalem so long. But the Lord had a way of working this and, and orchestrating this so that, so that they expanded out immediately. Um, had they all remained in Jerusalem, the Great Commission would never be fulfilled. I read First Peter many times and studied it, and yet I had never discovered that these sojourners in verse 1 were the elect in verse 2, and by studying the two words in detail, they were actually elected by God to be sojourners redeemed sojourners so you you, you follow that because that's that's important throughout first peter he he speaks to these people in that in that context so they knew that they knew where they were but they also knew they were there temporarily and didn't belong there on a permanent basis they were deliberately and providentially scattered by job by god and sent to settle to the far reaches of the known world James uses the word scattered abroad in, one, in James 1.1. 1, 1. Peter actually names some of the locations in 1.1. 1, 1. You can see that. You can read actually where some of the places these people were scattered to. Look at um, chapter 1. Let me, let me get there real quick. You, should, you say, Jeff, why don't you open this beforehand? Chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the, be the Lord... King James Version, follow along as best you can. Blessed be the Lord, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last days. In this ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if indeed be ye are in heaviness through manifold trials. These people were in heaviness in manifold trials. That means a lot of persecution and a lot of suffering. It was a tough life. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perish, perisheth, though to be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him, not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Key in here in verses 3 through 9 on the living hope in verse 3, 
These people were under heavy trials and persecution, yet Peter reminds them that they have what kind of hope? A living hope. The hope in a living Christ can't be a dead hope. It's, 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 it's a living hope. It's, that's, that's, how, that's how his, his blessings and uh, his, his, there's new joy every morning. I mean, when you think about that, it's its ongoing. It's his, it's his growth process, if you will. There's always a living hope. It's not a dead hope. Look at verse 4. Um, where he talks about inheritance. Perhaps um, you inherited something from your parents or some other person in your life. That usually means money or land or some type of temporal possession that will fade away, which is that, that word Peter does use. Perhaps it has already faded away, and all the money you inherited is already gone. Um, but in verse 4, we have a very impressive inheritance. It says nothing about money or lands or clothes, yet it is what I call an impressive inheritance. One incorruptible, undefiled, that never fades away and is reserved for you in heaven right now. We don't have it yet, just like you, you don't have an inheritance yet if you have parents or you're expecting something from a rich uncle somewhere. It's, it's yet to come, but it already is at the same time. So that's an inheritance I will take. It's incorruptible, fades not away. Look at verse 6 in chapter 1. We greatly rejoice in this, yet we are in what King James says, heaviness through manifold trials. That's a lot of extremely difficult trials. I don't know how else to express it. Um, no matter what we go through, we keep our eyes on the prize, so to speak. This leads to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ Jesus in whom we believe with unspeak joy unspeakable. I like that term as well. This gives a Christian purpose, speaking of purpose, this gives a, a Christian purpose, the in anticipation. We, we live in the now, we have life more abundantly, but we're anticipating even a better life than the abundant life Christ promises us now. It gives us purpose, it gives us a life purpose, it gives us a reason for living no matter what. We live our lives to the glory of Jesus with a hope that this same Jesus will see, will see us home to him and anticipation of that inheritance, which is incorruptible, we just spoke of. How did these people live in this suffering and this persecution? I, I think that, that as, as they understood that, and Peter is expressing, helping them understand their life here, that they are elect sojourners placed in a hostile environment providentially by God, as, as you understand that, your, your purpose will increase. And as your purpose increases, your problems in life decrease because you see them differently. You don't see them as problems that, oh, woe is me, why did this happen to me? You see that God is prov everything that happens to you has been filtered through God's hands. It doesn't just land on your happenstance. That's, that's why I don't use the word happy much, because it's, it depends on your happenstance. We're, we're told in Scripture we're, we're joyful no matter what happens, with unspeakable joy. We relish suffering. How can that be? Because that's our identity in Christ. We actually see our problems from God's perspective and in faith know that He will work out things for our good and His glory. Look at verse 15 of chapter um, 1 um, and 15 and 16. Somebody read that real quick. Just 15 and 16 of chapter 1. But as he who called you is holy, you also 
powerful requirement, wouldn't you say? We're to be holy like whom? Like God. <laughs> okay, now how, how, do you, how do you do that? And from these verses, uh, back up to 13, and I'm going to try to take you through, and I, I did this sometime back, and, and I, I, I wasn't sure whether to do it this morning, but I'm going to. I'm going to give you six qualities that I, can, I pulled up a, out of here from, of a holy person. But I kept thinking, holy, wow, how can you be holy? If God is holy, how can I be like God? I mean, I'm not him, and I'm not Christ, and I'm stuck in this mortal body. Uh, and what I really look forward to is an, is, is an inheritance incorruptible, but that's not me, not now, not, not here. Ultimately, yes. But how can I be holy as he is holy? If I, if I read chapter 13, I mean verse 13 in chapter 1, I like how the King James again reads it. It says, gird up the loins of your mind... Okay, which is just as just as one would gather their robes up above their knees in in New Testament times to be prepared to move quickly. Peter tells us to prepare our minds for action. So this means to me that a holy person is a thinking person. If my if I gird my mind, if I prepare my mind, I'm thinking godly thoughts. Then the word <clears throat> excuse me. Then the word sober <clears throat> or sober mindedness. Of course, this means not intoxicated or filled with anything other than the Holy Spirit. It also carries the idea of balance, okay? Balanced in one's walk. Paul tells us to walk worthily, to walk uprightly, to walk circumspectly. Here, Peter tells us to walk soberly. This is not only a physical step-by-step -step without stumbling or staggering, but carries the idea of a mental balance. Our thinking is not extreme. Our arguments are lucid enough to tear down strongholds. We are to search the scriptures for balance in our understanding. So a holy person is a balanced person. We see the word hope also there. We are to be, a, we are to be hopeful to the end for the grace of Christ. That tells me a holy, per, a holy person is a hopeful person. Then in verse 14, we read about obedient. And before when I had worked through this, I thought, I, I said, oh, a holy person is obedient person, but that's, and that's true. But this verse 14 tells us that not only is a holy person an obedient person, yes, this is true, but I took all of verse 14 and saw that, saw that we are obedient not by doing something, but what we do not do. If you read that carefully, I can obey Christ, but here, and I can be obedient. I can follow the rules, if you will. But here in 14, it says to be holy. These are things you don't do. And what does that say? It says you don't conform to the world. I saw that we are, we are obedient not by doing something, but what we don't do. In this, in this verse, we do not conform. I like the King James Version again, which uses the word fashion. Do not fashion yourselves according to the way you used to, according to the former lust you cherished in your ignorance. You didn't know better. Do not, do not look like the world. Do not conform to it. A holy person is a non-conforming person. Then looking at verse 17, I see a holy person is a reverent person. Even during this time of suffering and persecution in a, in a foreign land, we are to quote, past the time, or your version may say throughout the time of your exile, we are to endure and hope with a reverential trust in our Heavenly Father who judges each of us impartially according to our deeds. 
we have that hope that somehow through it all god is with us all the time through everything and that gives us a reverential fear of him while at the same trusting him as a gentle father a holy person is a reverent person then in verse 18 of chapter 1 we see we are redeemed the greek word actually means ransomed i like that word there's a that's a whole other study there's a slight difference between redeemed and ransomed i like ransomed um, my my son uh, named his firstborn child Ransom, so I have a grandson named Ransom. Um, but that's a whole other study unto itself. We have been ransomed not only from our evil lifestyle and the hold Satan had on us, we have been ransomed from the, right, from the wrath of, of a holy God. That's what we were ransomed from. And who did the ransoming? God himself ransomed us. He paid the price and bought us back out of our sin. Out of our sin. A holy person is a ransomed person. So I just took six qualities of holiness from chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. A holy person is a thinking person in 13, a balanced person in verse 13, a hopeful person in verse 13, a non-conforming person in verse 14, a reverent person in 17, and a ransomed or redeemed person in verse 18. I think the hardest time we have as Christians in today's world, especially in our Western culture, is the part about being a non-conforming. We continue to, we keep from conforming to the world more and more. We look like them, we talk like them, we act like them. Everything we do is like them almost. It's Sometimes it's like, anyway, sickened by the whole thing sometimes. Where I just can't, I don't see that much, not this church, I just don't see that, that much difference in the world and the church, to be honest. Churches just can't wait, it seems like, to, to judge themselves by what the world says about them. Uh, we want them to like us. Uh, but that's, that's not what we are to be. That's not who we are to be. Okay, I think these, quali- these, these six qualities, it's not necessarily an exhaustive list, but just what I took from these few verses in chapter 1, these qualities lead to the person we are called to be in verses 15 and 16, which Ryan just read, that we are to be holy because he is holy. Uh, just, just an approach you can take to st- your further study on 1 Peter. Um, we do not, we do that by taking on these characteristics, we, we, we become holy by taking on these characteristics, these qualities, these attributes of our Father. He is all of this. I'm not saying it's easy and not saying I'm there by any means. I am saying these are just six, six aspects of a holy life from Scripture we could all strive for. Um, I see it as one way we can follow Paul's instruction to examine ourselves in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 to see whether we are in the faith. Do we have these kind of, is this, is, this, is this the mind of Christ? Do we have these kind of attitudes? Do we have these, these six qualities as we approach life? Um, that then, if you don't, then begin to look carefully. Am I irreverent? Am I willing to be nonconforming to the world? Or do I keep falling back to those lusts which Paul tells us to flee? Uh, and Peter says, abstain from these lusts. Moving on to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 9 is pretty well known. Uh, about being a chosen people, a a chosen generation, royal priesthood. Songs have been written about it. And we are a holy nation. We are a people of his own. I said last week that in Malachi 3.17, we are called what? You remember the word? Great. Peculiar. Okay. We are peculiar. It's peculiar you didn't remember the word peculiar. 
but maybe that's what makes us peculiar. We forget things week, week, one week from, to the next. Peculium in the Greek, defined in the English, is the private, special, treasured possession of God. That's who we are. That's what makes us peculiar. Uh, it carries an amazingly personal connotation. I belong to God, not because I deserve to belong to Him, but because He chose me to be a special treasure of His and His alone. Uh, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. Um, not that we are to be deliberately peculiar or odd, or, and certainly does not mean we are, we are to be difficult to get along with. It means that we, the redeemed, are peculiar in that we and we alone are the special, private, treasured possession of God. Um, this word peculiar is the word God uses. I'm not making it up. That's what he calls us. Okay? He defines us this way, not me and not us. It is who we are by definition. We should, be, we should live as his chosen people, his personal possession. We should live as strangers, elected by God, to be placed by him in a strange and hostile world, living as a chosen generation, living as a royal priesthood, which is what he calls us. So if that's what he defines you as, live out that definition. That just, I'm just trying to give you who God says we are, Let's work to live that way. Let's strive to live that way. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to so empower us that we actually do live like a royal priesthood, like a chosen generation. Why? Why does God do all of this, even deliberately placing his special people into a hostile environment just to live here temporarily as we await his return? I mentioned it a little bit ago. Why does he do that? Look at the closing of verse 9 that we should show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is the church, the real church, the big C church, the bride of Christ church, all these special chosen people of God left here by him to sing his praises. That is worship. God leaves us here to worship him. That is why we are left in this world. Think about it. We are the only people who worship him. Other people... An unredeemed person can say, I believe in God. They may very well be singing, who knows, clapping, raising their hands, I don't know, running up and down the aisles, whatever. Okay, But if they are not redeemed, that is not worship. And God does not recognize that as worship. He doesn't see that as worship. Only his redeemed, only his special chosen people actually worship him. That's why we're left here. Think about it. We are the only people who worship him. We are to praise him, and he actually inhabits our praise, according to Psalm 22, 3. He says, but Psalm 20, the psalmist said, But thou art holy, thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. That's where, that's where praise, that's where he resides. As we praise him, he is there. Okay, when we worship, he is with us. In view of our position as a people chosen by God to extol his praises, the Christian life is to be one of worship. Worship is beyond what we are doing now and what we'll do during the, quote, worship hour in a few minutes. Our lives, everything we do is to bring worship to God. And if you want to know more about a chosen generation or royal priesthood, you can write this down if you want to. I refer you to Exodus 19.5, Isaiah 43.21, Malachi 3.17, where we're peculiar. And, and you can compare that with New Testament Titus 2.14. Chapter 3, a brief but deeper look at chapter 3, spe specifically at verses 8, 9, and 10. 
I, I'm going to say, how, how do you live a good life? Uh, uh, how, how do you live a good life? Um, I see that these verses at the end of Peter uh, come where Peter is speaking about submission, love of the brethren. I'm in chapter 3. God of living in the home. And now he says in verse 8 of chapter 3. Jump there and you will probably see the first word is the word. Finally. Okay. That's one of those words that almost every version says finally. Why? Because in the Greek that word means finally. <laughs> okay. There's not any other way to take it except finally. However, uh, like words such as behold and verily and therefore and likewise, those are words that God uses to get your attention. So when Peter goes through all of this and he's in chapter 3, he's kind of right in the middle. He says finally. Okay, when you see that word, finally, it should get your attention. Finally, then do the five W's and the, and the H's. What is that? Guys who come, who meet, us, meet with us on, on Thursday mornings, what are the five W's and the H? They're in, it's in John David's notes, every, questions every week. Remember the five W's and the H's? Do what we're you, you've never, what are you doing at the men's Bible study, Nancy? <laughs> Who, where, when, and how. Okay, we're not going to get into the five W's and H's right now, but this is a good, this is how you approach this, okay? To turn out, what kind of a life am I to be living? What does, what does, a, what does a life for me? We just looked at a, a holy life. What, but what about me? What, what about me here, day by day? How, how do I live? Um, I want to go through the W's and the H's, but I will, let's break down the verses just a little bit. Maybe you'll see what I mean by a, a good life, Okay. Again, back to a balanced life, a reverent life, a life that's a blessing to others. Maybe we'll tease you a little bit to dig deeper into the verses. The good life, at least for a Christian, could be summed up in, in verse 8. Finally, live righteously in what you think, what you feel, what you do, and what you say. Be careful with the feelings, but what you think, what you feel, what you do, and what you say. Look at verse 8a, the beginning of verse 8a. You experience the good life in what you think. Be of what kind of mind? One mind or a, a unified mind. Uh, what kind of mind would that be? Because we are told to have the mind of Christ. So if we all have the mind of Christ, we, we think a lot. We think, we, we think alike, not that we think a lot. Sometimes we don't think at all. Sometimes we think too much. But we think alike. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. And if you have the mind of Christ, it's hard to think of anything other than who Christ is. And our thoughts are like his. So we can live a good life in that what we think and how we think. Let the mind of Christ be in you. And then what you feel in the second part of verse 8 We'll call it 8b, where the words you see there from, that I have in King James is compassion, love, pity, and courtesy. Those words have a meaning in verse 8, like having compassion. Compassion is what? Sympathy. You might have that. That might be in your version. Love is love. Uh, pity is tenderheartedness. And courtesy or courteousness is a humble mind. Um, these are all feelings. Though, though compassion is a feeling. Love is a feeling. Pity is a feeling. To be courteous to someone is, 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 is a feeling that I have. They may get the results of my courteousness, of my courtesy, but I, it's, it's a feeling that I have. 
And it results from how I think. So I think, okay, and then how I feel, that's in eight. These are all feelings, attitudes towards others. What you do and don't do in verse nine, not rendering evil for evil or argument for argument, reviling for reviling, but what? Blessing to all. So don't argue, don't return evil for evil, but bless. So it's what you do in your life. And what are we to do? We are called to bless others. The world gets a benefit from Christians, Christian blessing all of the time. Think of the schools and the, I mean, just sheer ministry. Think of the hospitals for crying out loud. Think of the missionaries that have gone out and how the world is a better place because of us. Okay, They may not think so, <clears throat> remember, because they are hostile to us, yet we do it anyway. Why? Because we are called to bless everyone. We are called to bless everyone. And then finally, it's in verse 10, is what we say. In verse 10 of chapter 3, refrain from, that is, keep my tongue from evil and my lips from lies. So my assessment of the, quote, <clears throat> good life for me, using 1 Peter 8 through 10, is that the good life is what I think in verse 8, what I feel in verse 8, the second part of verse 8, what I do and don't do in verse 9, and what I say in verse 10. If you summed all of that up and you said, let me practice this, let me just practice those couple of verses, I think you would have a pretty good life. Qualify life, I mean qualify good, I've always said that. What do you mean by good? Why do, why do, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, define bad and define good, and then the, we, can, we can assess that. But in here, I, your life <clears throat> lived this way is going to be one where at the end of the day, you can say, Father, for, you, you go back through your list of, of errors and mistakes and imperfections you're perpetrated throughout the day, they will get fewer and fewer and fewer. I've said to anybody that will listen, this is all we need for life and godliness. If you follow this, you, you, you will never make a mistake. You could live a perfect life. It's the, it's the body. Jesus said, what? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You, you could do that. The Bible tells you everything you need. It, it doesn't necessarily tell you what color shirt to wear, but it tells you to wear clothes. I mean, there, there are principles that the Bible has for all of us. And followed, followed you, you can have a right life today. You can, at the end of the day, not be encumbered by sin after sin after sin after sin. You can live a right life. You can live righteously, which is what we're called to do. It doesn't mean you will not make a mistake. It doesn't mean you will not sin, okay? We, have, we will do that just like Paul until we are freed from this body. Then one day we will be perfect. But we can strive to live godly living from what, living the way God tells us. Follow, follow that. You see where all of the Peter is taking us? So it could be summed up and finally live righteously in what you've Think, feel, do, and say. Let's see what time I got. In chapter 4, and we'll speed up a little bit. Say, Jeff, you've been going pretty fast, are you? We're going to speed up a little bit. Um, I like the way verse 1 reads. The, that word arm, arm yourselves, means to prepare to do battle. Someone read four, chapter, verse 1, chapter 4. Just read it. Anybody. So then since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. 
Okay. Good. That, that was one. Go, go. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. Okay. The word, I want to, I want to zoom in on the word arm. That is a, <clears throat> that is a combination. It's a preparedness type word, but it's prepared to do battle. It's what you might think it is. But how do you, but in the context, how do you prepare to do battle against suffering? Well, you prepare to do battle. It's almost like you're, it's an internal, it's an internal strife that why am I going through this? Lord, why are you putting me through this? It's, it's not only do you battle against uh, powers of the air, we read that in Ephesians 6, but it's, it's I, I don't want to begrudge suffering. If I suffer, those who live in, righteously in Christ Jesus will suffer. John 16, 33, in the world you have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So even though we know we're going to suffer, we may not like the idea of suffering. Therefore, I have to battle against that idea that I don't want to suffer. I don't, I don't want to deliberately jump into suffering, but I don't go out of my way to avoid it either. Okay, that's kind of, so arm yourself. It is a military term, and if you go to Ephesians 6, where we put on the whole armor of God, Armor is one thing. You take armor, and if I can, I can see that you, are, you have on armor, but if you are armed, I may not know that or not. Perhaps it's a concealed weapon, <laughs> Perhaps, but you, you take up the arm. You arm yourselves with the mind that's Christ in preparation like Jesus did for suffering. How did he prepare himself before he was crucified? He prayed. He literally sweat drops of blood. If your prayer life is on again, off again, if it's kind of watered down, if you, you know whether it is what it should be. You really do. Christians know, especially if you've been a Christian, if you're mature in any way, if you've been a Christian for any way, you know whether your prayer life's right. And you know you need to pray more. I, I, I would ask for a show of hands, and mine would be the first ones up. First one up. We do not pray enough because that prepares us for the suffering and the persecution ahead. Okay? So we arm ourselves. <clears throat> we see in verse 2, <clears throat> that word arm is, to, is prepared to do battle. Verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, we see, that we're no, we see that we're no longer to live like we once did and like the world does now. We see in verse 4 that they think it's strange. Now, interesting that all the way back to 1-1, we start out being strangers, and here in chapter 4, we are still strangers, only here... We are actually strange. <laughs> um, the world thinks it's strange that we do not live like we did or like they continue to do. We know this happens not only because we likely have experienced it, people. But when I got saved, the friends that I had before I was saved slowly retreated, <laughs> slowly left because I was, I, you know, it just happened and I was kind of bold enough to tell them and they said, man. Well, it was Jeff got religion. They didn't know what it was, and I was, I didn't really know how to articulate what it was. I knew something happened. All I could do is tell them. I don't know, guys. I don't know. I was blind. Now I see. I didn't, I wasn't blind, but that's the story out of John 9-11, but I, that's all I knew, so I would explain it as best I could. Now I could probably articulate a little bit better, <clears throat> but I'm still struggle with that. That's why somewhere in my Bible, I picked up some Romans Road little tracks because sometimes somebody else does a better job than I can and if that's the best I can do 
then the world is going to con continue to get that from me, Lord willing. So we see that they think it's strange that we, we don't live like we once did or that like they continue to do. We know this happens. We probably experienced it. But the Bible right here forewarns us that it will happen. You will suffer persecution. Remember, we are strangers in chapter 1, in chapter 1, verse 1. And here in 4.4, 4, we are actually strange. So we are strangers appearing strange in a strange land. Now wrap your head around that just a minute because that's who you are. I mean, that's who we are. Not that we deliberately go out and, and, and function like some weirdo, but we are, we are strangers here, and we appear strange to others, and we live in a strange land. So I'm not particularly surprised that the world thinks we all are kind of goofy for being here this morning when we could be sleeping in or golfing or whatever it is other people do on a, on a Sunday morning. Verse 9, <clears throat> verse 9 in chapter 4, we see use hospitality one to another without grudging or grumbling. No grumbling means do not complain about helping out other believers. More than this is more, this hospitality now, this is more than just opening your home for gatherings, except, et cetera, although that certainly means that, but it has a broader meaning here. I define hospitality here as ministry to all the saints. No one is left out. Yes, this could be opening your home but also taking meals to someone, funding mission trips, anonymously donating a car. In a church settlement uh, environment, it could be a benevolent fund, taking care of those that maybe things happened in their lives and you kind of assess their financial needs and you, you were able to meet that. I think you see it as more than opening a, quote, hospital, all the same root word. It is actually being hospitable. I mean, if you've ever been in a hospital, they're not necessarily hospitable, but it is a hospital. Get it? We are going to be different. We're going to open the hospital, and we're actually going to minister. Now there's a big difference. One last word. Yes, we are to show hospitality to everyone, even the unbeliever. Yet we are to be especially hospitable to believers. If you see verse 9, it says to what? One another. Speaking directly to we strangers. And in Galatians 6.10 it says, show hospitality to all, especially those of the household of faith. So we are to be especially hospitable to fellow believers, not exclusively, but especially. Okay. This comes easier for some more than others. If you have the gift of hospitality, it's like you can't wait to have a big crowd over. For others, it is done perhaps from a less willing heart, which is why Peter adds the qualifier without grumbling. Oh, man. The Santiago's are coming again with two dogs and all of the children. And I, well, no, you know, that is, maybe I have that attitude, but, but it's, <laughs> uh, but the point is you do it without grumbling, okay? And especially to the believers. Verse 10 of chapter 4, we read about using your gifts. Note the ending of that verse, the manifold grace of God. Everything we have, we did not earn, we do not deserve. You've been given a gift. It is all gifted to us by our loving Father. Were He to give us what we deserve, we would all be dead and sent to hell immediately. Okay? Had we done something for Him and He owed us anything, it would be wages. And as sinners, we know the wages of sin are what? Death. God does not dispense wages. He dispenses gifts. Okay? He dispenses gifts, and we are to use them for the edification of the church, 
and for His glory. He does this because His greatest desire is to live His life through us. He's not here. We live on His behalf. Okay? He left us here for that reason. The entire world lies in darkness, and we are the only light they have. See verse 11. That's a note to myself. See verse 11. You have a gift. Use it for His glory. As you minister, then minister within your God-granted abilities, so that in all things, everything you do, Christ is glorified. Don't fake it. You cannot. You, you may try to use a gift you have. I think I have the gift of teaching. How has that been confirmed? How has that been confirmed? I, I, I find people who have the gift of listening. So there's two ways to kind of look at that. I, other people have a gift of hospitality, which I have, but not quite like some people. I, I, I'm not particularly merciful. I will help someone. I'm trained in first aid, all of that, so I could help someone. But I don't know to consider myself particularly merciful. Uh, is, is, there are a lot of other types of gifts that, that you may or may not have, wisdom being one. If you don't know, I said, like, if you don't know your gift, try, try to see what you can find out. Um, verse 16 and 4, there is no shame in suffering. Expect it. Take it as the opportunity to glorify God in your suffering, and He will see you through the suffering. This includes physical suffering. A Christian's sickness will ultimately bring honor and glory to God. Sickness can and often is used of God. You look in John chapters 9 and 11, which I alluded to. The blind man, wonderful chapters see the nature of Christ unfold in these sicknesses and these healings. In closing, a few things from chapter 5. Elders, we just appointed Grady as a new elder in our church, and I am most thankful for him, and my thankfulness grows the more I get to know and work with him. This section speaks about elders, but inside each verse is the deeper exhortation to submission, back where Peter has never left that. Elders still submit. We submit to elders. Even elders, um, and, and that word is episkopos, and it means overseer or bishop or elder. We, John David took us through all of that. They are to be a humble servant leaders. Okay, I see in verse 5 where we non-elders are to submit to the leadership of our local body. Verse 10 is full of construction in architectural terms. You can look there quickly. Those words which are probably, you'll see words like perfect, establish, or establish, strengthen, settle, all are construction terms. Uh, restore, confirm, you'll see those. We see in chapter 2, we saw in chapter 2, Peter talked about living stones and spiritual house. He brings that here at the end. Peter continues that architectural theme. <clears throat> I mentioned verse 6 and 7 last week. We like verse 7 because it gives us somewhere to cast our cares. But verse 7 puts me on the hook, so to speak, to be humble. Okay? And not just trying to be humble, but humbling myself how? Under the mighty hand of God. So true humility comes from being under God's mighty hand. I lose sight of what being where I am as a Christian and what little humility I have may quickly wanes. When I, when I lose sight of the fact I'm under God's mighty hand, I quickly lose my, lose my hum, humility because without his oversight, I'm off doing it my way. And believe me, I think my way is always the best way, okay, because I'm, I'm somewhat, I mean, I'm somewhat gifted, but I'm also overconfident. <laughs> so, you know, I, it's like if I get out from under God's oversight, I am quick to do it my way. In fact, I will step in and run your life and everybody else's, okay? Just give me the opportunity. But that's why I have to restrain myself and, and step back 
under the hand of God. Okay, Not just the hand of God, but the mighty hand of God. When we do that, <clears throat> our pride takes over when we do not see ourselves as under the mighty hand of God. In closing, a few final comments on humility. Uh, more and more in this country, we are losing the virtue of humility. Um, everything is about getting what is due me, about revenge, about payback, about reparations, about tearing down anything I don't like, about ignoring anything that might rub me the wrong way. More and more people see themselves as master of their own ship <clears throat> rather than humble under the mighty hand of God, and this is often the case with Christians. There is nothing that sets a man out of the reach of Satan like a humble heart and a worry-free mind. Peter speaks to this, a humble heart and a worry-free mind. Christ never worried. In fact, he tells us not to worry. Okay? So if we have his mind, we are not worried. Okay? Pride and worry may well be our biggest enemies. You can see Proverbs 11.2 and 16.18. Every sin has its root in pride. Satan, then Eve, then Adam, they all did it their way. And look, look where we are now. They did not see themselves under the mighty hand of God. In fact, Eve went out from under the mighty hand of God. Satan had already rebelled against him. They saw the opportunity to, to be equal with or even above God. True humility is a proper awareness of yourself. The person who looks up to God while under his mighty hand cannot look down on other people. Okay. I hear the pitter-patter of little feet upstairs. <clears throat> and we have approximately six minutes. If I went until 10, any comment, any question, any insight you gained this week. Great. You know, I could go another five minutes if you want. I'm just kidding. I, I won't do that. Okay, I think next week you were probably, maybe if you were expecting Andy again this morning, then I am he, or I was he. Read, read what you want me to expound on. Read that to me. Let me, let, me, let me tell you what I have learned and been taught through the, through the years. That is one of those difficult passages. It's kind of like where Peter also talks about uh, that water, you're saved by water, which is not the case in, uh, in, in uh, baptism. But when, when Christ, Satan always thinks he's winning. He knows he's a loser, but he always thinks he's winning. And he knows ultimately what is, where ultimately he will be. The demons, the demons in, the, in, in the Gadarene, he said, have you, come to, have you come to persecute us before our time? They know their time is coming where they will be cast into the lake of fire. <clears throat> but Jesus went to, just, just very briefly, 
Jesus went to, and remember there's Hades, H-A-D-E-S, there's Sheol, there's hell, there's Tartarus. There are these different terms that you have to pull out of the Greek and understand. But he went to the deepest of the deepest, <clears throat> preached to the fallen angels, go back to Genesis 6. He preached to these angels that were the dead, that were in hell and told that two, two people, he preached to them and said, I, I don't think I've, I've lost. I, evil men slayed me. I died on the cross, but I am alive again. You see, I'm alive. You have lost. That's basically he preached to the fallen. The dead who were Old Testament saints who were in basically a holding pattern until his, resurre until his, res his ascension, he said, bide your time. Here, now you see I'm alive. You, you believed in the, in the resurrection in the Old Testament. We, you are going to be resurrected just as I am. So that's really, really as, as simple as I can get it right now. I'm not certainly not an expert at it by any means. That's one of those in-depth kind of studies. And the closest I've come is, number one, what I've been taught and learned over the years. Number two, actually looking at those words, Sheol, Hades, Hell, Tartarus. Those are, those are terms that Old Testament and New Testament uses <clears throat> for places, for the depths of hell. Because there are, <clears throat> there are degrees of punishment. And uh, Jesus himself said, it will be worse for, for Tyre and Sidon than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. So somewhere... He says, it's going to be worse for you because you've rejected you. I'm right here in front of you. You've rejected me. It's bad enough for Sodom and Gomorrah. Look what happened then. Imagine what's going to happen to you. So there, there's a there's a and you have to go through that to kind of get a better understanding. Does that help a little bit? I don't I don't yeah, don't don't leave it all up to up to me. But uh, OK, I think that's done. Let me close uh, in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> Again, Peter tells us it's all we need for life and godliness, and yet we see it being rejected, some often out of hand, um, even from pulpits. We have uh, people here uh, day in and day out who say you can't be trusted. Did God really say? We don't need the, uh, new, we don't need the Old Testament completely unhitched from it. We hear those kind of terminologies. That's kind of an approach to your word, Lord, and yet uh, we know that all Scripture is inspired, and uh, we come to a better understanding of it when we let Scripture interpret Scripture on our behalf. Thank you, Father, that we have had these, uh, this time for uh, learning this morning, that you've uh, we have a, a place, <clears throat> speaking of being temporary, in a, in a place we are temporarily in this building right now. We know that we only have literally a couple of months left, Father. We pray that um, as sojourners and strangers and pilgrims literally in this building, that you will uh, open a way for us together as a local body of believers uh, somewhere else in another building with, a, with, a, with, a, with an adequate roof over our head, Father. Uh, but at the same time, should we have to be dispersed and, and who knows what, gathering homes or any, any other way to maintain our, our relationship and our fellowship as a local body before you, Father, work that out on our behalf. We, we look forward to all you do for us. Lord, prepare us for suffering. Let us rejoice in that and arm ourselves, uh, prepare our minds for battle which is that battle against that suffering and against that persecution as we live as so, so elected sojourners, strangers and pilgrims in a hostile world placed by your providential and loving hand. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week. Back to Romans. Andy, back to Romans. Back to Rome. <laughs> And I will, well, 
and I will thank Andy for all he does week after week after week. You, you turn up and do a wonderful job. We thank you. Thank you.